All right, ready? Yes, sir. All right, today is Monday, October 19th, 2015, and this is episode 136 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. Happy Monday to you. Hopefully you survived. Uh, by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Sorry we're late, guys. Yesterday was a busy day for both of us. Indeed. And uh, we'll we'll issue some refunds for the late show. That's right, discounts. Uh, so, um, just before we get started, the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employer. Uh, so, with that, um, anything you wanted to cover first? Uh, no, we can we can jump into stories. It's, All right, good you know, I I I will say that the the concept we were talking about, the I guess I just lied to you, I do have something to say. The concept we were talking about at the end of last show about having personality style focused InfoSec awareness training got some interesting traction on, on the Twitters. So, uh, I will tell you it's really easy to come up with ideas and it's really, 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 really hard to actually execute on them. Because <laughs> that yeah. takes work we, and effort. We got, some, uh, we got some emails too that I have to forward you uh, Calling me an idiot? Yeah. No, no, actually, uh, pretty, pretty interested. So, hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, send them along, and I'll, I'll take a look. Absolutely. All right. So um, we have a couple stories tonight. It was, um, I'd say, it was a, an interesting news week. And in, in, uh, other, other than flash hell, you know, there there wasn't a, an incredible amount of uh, of breach news. I guess I'd say. I will tell you, though, on the Flash thing, just for a moment, uh, in general, most organizations test patches before they deploy them. But I'm almost getting to a point where I want to start figuring out which patches, what type of security patches can be pushed without testing, uh, which is a little risky, right? But there's a time delay in testing, which is also risky <clears throat> when we're seeing zero days floating around and, you know, emergency patches and such from, from vendors. I'm wondering from, from an enterprise vulnerability management maturity standpoint, if they're, uh, should you treat all patches as equal or should you start saying, you know, certain patches, uh, you know, certainly need to go through a test group and uh, go through user acceptance training and all that jazz and other patches like just push it, just push it blind, push the damn thing <laughs> and see what happens deal with any any breakage as a result I, I suspect that um, there probably is some and and I would I would just say say anecdotally it seems like flash is probably one patch where you you wouldn't it wouldn't make sense to spend a lot of investment in in testing time but something like Java you know which I, I realize Java's kind of fallen out of favor but in by the wayside but you know back in the heyday of Java if you didn't test your apps on Java, I mean, that was kind of perilous um, because, you know, it, there's always some incompatibility. Um, Microsoft kind of ebbs and flows with their yeah. with their updates. And for a long time, 
they were very reliable. And as of late, you know, you probably want to pa- test those patches. So, um, yeah, it's a, that's a tough, that's a tough nut. Yeah, they recalled uh, like three patches in the last year. Microsoft did, yeah, and reissued. Right. So that's that's a scary, you know, sort of thing to just trust them blindly. Absolutely. Uh, you know, having said that, I do wonder if. Um, now I know that there's a lots of controversy about well, is Flash you know Flash is baked into Chrome now, and it's actually baked into um, I guess IE and Edge. Uh, but kind of putting that to the side for a second, I wonder. You know, Brian Krebs wrote an, an article I guess earlier this year about life without Flash, and I, I do wonder if if kind of like we've we've started to shun Java if it might be time for flash too you know maybe uh a lot of the functionality of flash is built into html5 which may also have similar security issues i will tell you i can think of three or four security uh, appliances or software or whatnot security centric information security centric uh, applications in my enterprise environment that require flash for me to access and operate So, uh, I do think probably it's gotten to a point where you shouldn't just issue Flash to everybody, and maybe you need to start asking why do you need Flash and justifying it as part of a proof software build. Um, and, but and probably also limiting Flash, the execution of Flash to the specific use cases. Like you said, you know, you should, if you have some specific internal security apps, you know, f- limit it to those. Yeah, if you can. If you can, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, plus click to activate and all that jazz. But I don't know. It's it's a tough one. I I I feel that yes, Flash is a big problem, and yes, uh, it's probably something that can go. But uh, if I'm being pessimistic, I think there's always going to be something that is going to be in that category. Yeah, well, I, you know, I asked that question on Twitter over the weekend. If I became, you know, god of the cybers and I banished flash from the you know from everybody's computer would that actually change anything? And you know, I I think in the short term maybe, but in the long term probably not. Something else would take its place. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, you know, and then some folks are advocating don't don't bother just wrap flash or or your browser in a micro VM or some sort of sandboxing and you know, make sure that it it who cares if it gets popped kind of thing. And uh, there's something to be said for that. But again, uh, it's always going to be an arms race. Yeah. I mean, that has, that has, it's that there's some definite usability issues with that, especially for the kind of rank and file person. Yeah. That's the, I, I, I think if somebody could figure out, a, you know, a really well-refined and easily usable solution for that, you know, that would, I think that would be a, there you go. There, there, there's somebody listening. There you go. That's how you can make your fortune. Right, because that's easy. Just, you know, <laughs> no problem. Have it done by Tuesday. I didn't say it was easy. <laughs> I will tell you, though, every time something like this comes up, I see the the smattering of tweets from vendors going, oh, we would have protected against that. <laughs> that's right. We detected this. Uh, you were protected eight months ago. But this isn't what you want to talk about. No, no, no. So, um... We do have some stories, uh, the first of which comes from Threat Connect, and this is a 
blog post by a gentleman named Wade Baker who used to work with Verizon on the date the data breach investigation report. And all I can one thing I'll say is, damn, this is a long post. Um, and I, I'm not intending to go through all of it. However, I thought it was exceedingly interesting. Um, the the data nerd in me and the uh, risk nerd in me kind of collided on on this particular post. And you know, this kind of goes back to some discussions I've had with with people about you know how how do you from a you know from a, a more pure risk approach you know how do you get the kinds of data that you need in order to be able to figure out how you prior, you properly prioritize things and so what this blog post is about is taking threat intelligence feeds and mapping it into uh you know into something like fair which is a uh, you know an, an actual uh, what I'll call proper risk management framework, and uh, and then using using the frequencies that come out of that threat intelligence feed to inform your uh, your risk management program, so you can see you know more I guess more objectively rather than as he says you know rather than getting a bunch of people in a conference room and arguing about whether a yellow risk times a yellow uh, you know, I, I should should say a yellow likelihood versus a yellow vulnerability uh, is a orange or a yellow impact. You know, that's not a productive thing. But but that's how we do it. It, it seems it is how we do it. I don't understand. That's exactly what we do. I thought that's how it was done. It it, it is how it's done, and it's how it's taught, and it's completely wrong. You're blowing my mind tonight, man. Just boom. Completely wrong. So anyway, um, this is something that uh, I know it's it's not in the normal context of things we talk about. However, uh, you know, every now and then I like to expose the audience to something new. And well, yeah, it's your show, man. Get crazy. <laughs> there you go. So um, yeah, I, if if you're if you're at all interested in this, I would encourage you to read it. I will I will tell you that every now and then I get an email or someone on Twitter hits me up about this, you know, how do I justify um, my, you know, my investment in whatever to management? And if you, you know, when, when you start going down that road, this is where you end up. And, you know, because... What do you mean by this is where you end up? This, uh, what's what's described in this article, right? You know, the, okay. the, the, the fair type of assessment you know, fair is a like again, like I said, it's a it's an actual, real uh, what I guess maybe what I'll call adult <laughs> risk assessment process. Can you give us the twenty second elevator speech of what fair is for those who've never heard of it? It I believe it stands for factor analysis in, in information risk, right? And it's a um, I, I shot from the hip there. I was unprompted, pretty good. Even for as old as I am, it's not bad. So anyway, and, and you've got a bad hip, so I wouldn't be shooting from it. <laughs> True, enough. liable to break that thing. True enough. So, uh, so anyway, um, the the whole idea is, behind fair is that you are using uh, actual uh, mathematical methods to calculate uh, risks, right? So, so half of fair, what I would call half of fair, is is split up into this. Uh, ontology, 
of how to break down risks into likelihoods and impacts and uh, which sounds a lot like what we do in you know what, what the way uh, the more immature yeah, it sounds, so far it sounds like every other right risk analysis framework I've dealt with right but that kind of decomposes down to the point where you're actually plugging in real numbers in, in terms of you know the the frequency of exposure the frequency of attack and um, kind of a, across a whole bunch of different factors and you know not by the way none of this is like revolutionary it's it's uh, when you actually go through it it makes a ton of sense however it is much more uh, structured and I'm not going to say rigid but it takes out the guesswork right so the the, the main issue and, and the best way I can describe fair is to contrast it from you know what what is it competes with uh, what it competes with is basically getting a bunch of people in a room and brainstorming about well what are the what are the threats? How likely do we think they are, and how much do we think that each of them are going to, co- you know, the the impacts would cost, and then we, you know, we multiply one side by the other side, and then we figure out, well, okay, what's what's our prioritization, and this is a bit different approach because you're kind of going systematically through uh, a, a bunch of different domains. And you are asking, you know, not you're, you're not guessing. You are trying to find objective data that represents each of these elements. Clear as mud. Fine explanation. I am sorry. <laughs> the the book on the book on fair is uh, is like a thousand pages long. So so it's, uh, so what we're really saying, or what you're really saying, if if I could paraphrase, is that. This tries to take a more pragmatic, science-based approach as opposed to a anecdotal, gut-based that's, approach. That's exactly, okay. exactly what it is. Cool. So people should look into FAIR. Yeah. There are, um, there are certifications for FAIR. Mm. And, can, uh, I, can I put it on my business card? <laughs> With your CISSP? That's right. Yes. Uh, I don't know. If I can't, then I don't know. Yeah, what's, what's what's it worth, right? Seriously, uh, but I do, th- you know, I do think that, and I've I've said this on in the past. I do think that as time goes on, organizations are going to demand a much more accurate accounting of risks, and and a much more accurate investment or or objective way of investing in IT security, and I, you know. Th- there may be better ways, right? I mean, the one thing about one thing I've learned is that you know a lot of things aren't perfect, but is it better than everything else you've got, right? And that's I think where fair fits fits in. You know, it's not perfect, but it is a better approach than just about anything we have today. Certainly better than the conference room brainstorming. Fair enough. No pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. Nice. All right, so uh, our next story comes from The Register, and the title is Inside Mandian's Biggest Forensic Breach Battle. Is this Anthem? Holy cow. Um, so so this is a, a, a tale of intrigue and mystery. Warning. Possible subliminal marketing ahead. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. I mean, clearly, clearly Mandiant is, um, they definitely come out of this looking really good, don't they? Uh, well, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I kept looking for the phrase, couldn't possibly be defended against, and clearly nation state. It wasn't um, there. I, I, I assume they ran out of space in the article, because it clearly it, would have been article. there. I thought it was a press release. Okay, get, carry on. <laughs> kind of. No, okay, all right, all kind right. Of. I'll stop ripping on Mandiant now, and you know they will obviously never be a sponsor either. Uh, but, uh, so... This is uh, Mandia talking about an eight-month engagement where they were basically fighting to get uh, some malicious hackers out of an environment. Yeah, and it was, a, it was kind of a tit-for-tat, as they describe it, engagement with an adversary who had compromised more than a thousand endpoints uh, with, with malware. And, and uh, apparently what what they say in here is that they ran their standard playbook for the eviction. And just by the way, eviction is the lovely process where you, um, you know, you, f- you work to figure out all of the places that your adversary is in and all the ways they get in and all at once you close them all down simultaneously so that uh, they're, they're out for good uh, because otherwise you know, if you if you don't have a an understanding of all the places and ways they're coming in, uh, you know, you can clean up part of the environment and they're just back. And this is apparently what happened here. And and part of me says, well, if that happened, their eviction process probably wasn't as good as maybe they thought it was. <laughs> well, they made a couple of kind of insinuations in the article that their normal playbook gasp it didn't work this time for some reason <laughs> that's right because they were just that good that's right now they may be that good but it tells you something interesting that mandian has a playbook which is somewhat to be expected you know not everything is a you know you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time you walk into an organization there are some best practices that you can adopt and 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 execute on but uh, you know their point is that that stuff didn't work these guys were smarter than that they were better than that yeah, and I think the thing for, I suspect, most of our listeners aren't going to, anytime soon, have to deal with an adversary at that level. However, you can, if you read this article, you can really start to get a, a an idea of the different key processes that go into responding to a, a more substantial kind of a of an attack and so i think that's a very valuable thing so they talk about things like and we've talked about in the past like having an external or or separate means of communication right because you know if you have this kind of a an active adversary who is in your environment they know that you know they're there and uh you know and, and you're having this bit of an arms race you don't know what they're monitoring. They might be monitoring email. They might be monitoring, you know, they could be listening in on the stupid microphones on laptops. Who knows? So you have to you have to keep all of that in mind. Um, again, most people probably don't have this advanced of an adversary to, to deal with. Uh, however, um, these are things to think about, right? And then uh, the, the concept of the eviction is an important concept, uh, because not all malware is, you know, crypto locker, right? There's, there's, uh, you know, if you're, 
if you are uh, unfortunate enough to fall victim to some, I'm not going to call it nation state, but but more advanced than uh, crypto locker, you, you know, you're going to end up having to do something like that. You're going to end up having to plot an eviction and kind of be methodical about it. So, yeah, there's some interesting stats in this article too. Uh, more than a thousand endpoints were compromised. Some 7,000 MD5 hashes were assigned to the constantly changing malware. So that means that they're constantly rolling new malware and, and randomizing the malware so signatures can't easily pick it up. Uh, each compromised box had its own unique command and control server that was almost, hosted almost exclusively on hacked third-party sites. That one was uh, was really interesting to me because it's it's very common in an incident response situation or active incident situation that you you know, you, you want to look for common things right you you know you have this big network uh, and and you are basically assuming that anything is potentially compromised so I want to figure out you know how, how do I figure out what's potentially compromised well I look at the behavior of a known compromised system and I start to look for those attributes in other systems like what systems is it talking to on the internet and you know what files does it have what are, you know what file hashes does it have and 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 different attributes like that and when you have a situation like this what what they're saying here which is you know really critically important and I'm sure just was a total pain in the ass for these guys uh if each one of those systems is contacting a different command and control host potentially in a different that doesn't say it right but if if I were going to do it right, different port too, or different protocol. There's nothing common, right? There, right. The, IOCs aren't working. Exactly. Yeah, uh, which is interesting. So, just a little background too. Apparently, this was a prezo given at the Cyber Defense Summit. Yes. Uh, so that I'm not sure if that slide deck or video of it's out there, but it might be interesting to to go watch it if it is. Yeah, I'll have to see if I can find that. Um, I did see in here somewhere. Oh, yes. Um, one of the, and this is really funny. I thought, um, first off, they they had to, uh, 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 as they put it, the MIR, the Mania Incident Responder, became a digital doorstop because it was, uh, and I think part of it was again going back to the. Now, is that a doorstop to stop digital doors? I don't, it's not very clear. It's kind of ambiguous. Right, yeah. It's, it's kind of an odd phrase that leaves one to wonder, especially OCD people like myself, exactly what was into... Anyway, go on. Go anyway, on. Yeah. So uh, the other one was apparently a lot of... Well, I don't know if it's a lot or some percentage of the malware being used was Python-based. And so the uh, uh, they, they got lucky by upgrading Python to 3.4, and I assume they were using like 2.6 or 2.7 before, um, and with that, they got some additional logging capability that they didn't have on the other version of Python, and uh, and so that that apparently gave them some some new clues. So I'm I'm assuming that they started being able to um, you know, to queue in uh, use some of those Python logs as incident or indicators of compromise themselves, which I. I Assume. Yeah. So what that tells me, if I'm reading between the lines here, is that the bad guys were deleting logs and had a handle on what logs to delete automatically. And when they went up to Python 3.4, new and different logs are being created that slipped through their grasp. So, you know, one of the takeaways there is 
secure off-box logging is kind of handy, yes. at least for the beginning of a compromise. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And don't, by the way, and this was, a, this was a st- something Bob told me. Do not, do not have your logs, your separate log system uh, connected to the same Active Directory domain. And, and you know, but, my, <laughs> but administration, Jerry, ease of administration, <laughs> rights God. management. Why are you trying to make admin's life difficult? Yeah, because your adversary will get into that. Ah, uh, that never happens. Box so, and so we'll wipe the logs. I know. Whatever. You security people just spread in fear. <laughs> it almost never happens. Um, so, by the way, uh, this I got to rip on this for a little bit. There's a quote here that just is one of those pithy quotes that means nothing and is completely unhelpful. So the the article wraps with, and this is a quote from one of the presenters, when you have nothing, you've got to turn their weaknesses into your strengths. You must match or exceed the attacker's pace, development, visibility, advanced techniques, and intensity. And I assume by all of that, they mean higher Mandiant, right? I, seriously, what the hell am I going to do with that? I'm gonna walk in. I'm gonna walk into my CISO's office tomorrow and put that on the board and go. There you go. And he's gonna go. Okay. The the only way you can do that is by hiring Mandiant. Now don't get me wrong. Mandiant's got some great people, and they're very well respected. PR issues with Sony aside, uh, they're one of the better ones out there. If if I had to hire an external, or not that I have, you know, not that I would want to, but if I somebody asked me who would you hire to do a, you know forensics investigation i'd probably say mandy in first yeah i agree but you know that doesn't mean that we're not going to poke at him so yeah <laughs> marketers got a market but in this case it you know, I, I would like to go see the original preso i bet there's a lot more in here that didn't quite maybe make it or got lost in translation as the register was writing it up probably so so anyway Moving on to our next story, which also comes from the register. The title is Dow Jones Rubbishes Claims Against... uh, Sorry. Dow Jones Rubbishes Claims Russian Hackers Plundered Its Servers for Insider Trading Tips. Clearly, Uh, an Englishman wrote this article. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Proper Uh, English there. Yep. Hence my difficulty with it. So... uh, this was a, this was really interesting because last week, I think it was Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday. I don't remember the exact timing. There was a you know breaking news all over the place about um, you know Russian hackers had been found uh, stealing data from Dow, and and it was the kind of data that was was tradable, right? So. Um, and it was it was big news, and then uh, it was a couple hours later, Dow started putting out press releases saying, "I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> There's no investigation." <laughs> do, do, do you mean Dow's budget budget bait and dial-in shop? Because it ain't us. Yeah. Uh, so it was um, was was uh, interesting, and you know, I I um, I, I wonder how most organizations would react if you know if this sort of thing happened and the original stories quoted uh, like four different unnamed sources and so i still have not seen closure yet on what the hell happened here 
Uh, I do know that generally most reputable news sources uh, will, you know, they, if they're not going to cite a person, you know, a, a publicly cite a person, they'll go off and get several different corroborating anonymous sources, which appears to be what they did. Uh, I think they said there were four, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but apparently is BS. Now I know that after this story came out, there was a lot of uh, a lot of discussion about well, you know, is is Dow just hiding it or whatnot? And I, I'll tell you, uh, having been on the corporate side of this, I, I don't think so. Right? I think that um, the most you would have gotten out of Dow would be, you know, we're investigating or we are. You know, there's no current evidence of compromise. Yeah, well, there's there's no evidence the data has been misused. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree. If if they're going to go to the trouble of putting out this many denials, uh, they got to be damn sure they're right most of the time. Now, there's no accepting for stupidity, but there's serious legal consequences if they get that wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And reputational, and you know whatnot. But um, yeah, it's, it, this. Uh, it, it's interesting because just the week before we talked about it last the, the week, uh, I guess it was episode one thirty-five. Uh, Dow had leaked or lost like thirty-five hundred, yeah, thirty-five hundred credit cards, right? Uh, in a from their their website. Was it credit card or was it contact info? Uh, you might. Uh, I'm. Yeah, I don't remember. Right? It's late on a one on a Monday. My brain's starting to shut down. <laughs> some some sort of information was taken for, from somebody somewhere at some yeah, time. Yeah, but it was it wasn't you know it was clearly not being misused. There was no evidence no. Of, of it being no, misused. No. It was it was packaged up in a nice little package yeah. with a bow. But they I think they did offer credit monitoring. So of course there was that. Uh, anyway, no credit monitoring in this case. Apparently, no breach. Um, it is an interesting kind of um, tabletop exercise to think about what would happen if. You know, your organization was suddenly named as you know investigating a breach, and you're not. You know, what what would your reaction be? So yeah, this is an interesting one. What what do you think is really going on here? Do you think there's just some vicious rumor floating around, or something's really happening, and Dow is being cagey, or what do you think? Um, I don't think Dow's being cagey. I'm not. Uh, you what, know, what if they got a national security letter that said they couldn't talk about it? Um, my guess is that they would refer they would refer questions to the FBI. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, I, I yeah, I I just I don't think they would deny. I don't think they would issue a denial. I think they would do a deflection or or something. I mean, this is this is very vehement and and um, it just doesn't smack of something as you know is them actually investigating now. Now there is a possibility that um you know that that's not been explored yet as far as i'm aware and that is that, you know the sources were in law enforcement and dow isn't actually aware of it yet um, oh and it leaked to the press before it's really been officially yeah. delivered to dow yeah Ugh. well you would think by now that would have been cleared up yeah so you know here's this just a little story that bob told me once so bob was telling me and this was not all that long ago, that the FBI contacted his organization and told him 
or it wasn't him, right, but told his organization that there were, uh, they had detected um, some significantly concerning uh, activity involving some IP addresses belonging to Bob's company. And, you know, the nudge, nudge, wink, wink was, you know, it was some kind of government APT, you know, whatever acronym you want to throw in there. And, um, and so, so they went and looked and, you know, those IPs had been null routed for like three years. Um, so somebody had, had absconded with the AS? Had been banging around in the FBI for three years. <laughs> so, the wheels of justice turn slowly. So, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know that this is like fourth hand information right but um anyway i i think it's it's not impossible to think that uh it just hadn't gotten to dow yet i mean that my, my only reservation is that dow you know there is something going on it's just that dow doesn't know about it yet you gotta think though that dow is considered critical financial infrastructure and should have a speed dial uh, to somebody in authority in one of these organizations and I I would have hoped that before they issued a reply to this, that somebody, you know, because like you said, I'm sure that somebody in Dow had, knows somebody in the FBI and can call them up and say, what the hell? And, and uh, you know, I can only assume that the FBI contacted, don't know what you're talking about. But even that, you know, FBI is a big place. Who knows? So to be continued. To be continued. It's it's just a. It's so interesting to me, um, you know, especially given what happened the week before, and um, anyway, we'll, we'll see. I'm I'm very interested. So our last story for tonight it comes from nextgov.com, and the title is OPM to fully do away with passwords for network access in two years. Yeah, so um, uh, uh, in, in, you know, it's good to have a plan, though. It is good to have a plan, although I, <laughs> it's it's a little depressing, right? So and uh, technically, it's a misleading headline, by the way. It, it they're is. Not getting, they're not getting rid of passwords. They're getting they're going to two factor. Correct. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah, so the news here is that um, you know by the by the end of the fiscal year two thousand seventeen. OPM will enforce multi-factor authentication for 100% of its PIV, which are the smart card enabled users, along with some sort of two-step verification for 80% of users who do not have PIV cards. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, okay, the allegation of the OPM breach is that it was some contractor's access that was hijacked, Right. And I would assume, maybe incorrectly, don't know, uh, that it's the those external parties who don't have the PIV cards. And so what they're saying is that uh, in 2017, they're only going to have 80% of those people covered with multi-factor. So um, yeah, it's it's just still not a still not an airtight thing. <laughs> um, anyway. The, the the reason I wanted to include this one is you know, obviously two factors of uh, uh, an important thing. It's hard to hard to deny. Uh, I I do think that 
from their perspective, they had, you know, they had uh, uh, all of their employees required smart cards, right? But again, you got to know where you're not, where it's not there. Clearly not being effectively used. (laughs) Well, but it was absent for a significant portion of the people who come into your business. Whatever, man. They they passed that checkbox on that compliance thing. <laughs> that audit was completely satisfied. I don't understand what your problem You're is. You're a jerk. You You're no, a... I am telling you the reality on the ground. <laughs> it's sad but true. Oh, I know. I know. But to be fair, hindsight is always twenty twenty, And... It's a difficult thing to project. How are you going to have your company completely screwed? Well, I, I know, but here's the here's the thing that that is, I guess, frustrating or concerning, and I think also the lesson. Right. So there's a sentence in here. While while mandated to control network access with digital smart cards since 2004. So well, that mandate clearly didn't have much teeth. Only 1% of OPM computer users needed something more than a password to sign on as of September 2014. Yeah. yeah. But, they, but then they do go on to say that, that uh, as of today, all employees need smart card for network access. Now, I don't know if there's like different, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how much wordsmithing is going on in there. But the thing that concerns me is... It seems like they're, uh, to me, and this this could be just, you know, me misreading the situation, but it's like a situation where they are interpreting the requirement that your employees need to have, you know, smart card access, you know, and, and well, they didn't say contractors. They didn't say everybody. They just said employees. So we got that box checked. And you know the, the all those other people they can continue to use passwords, and I guess my point is think holistically, right? If you're gonna if you're talking about some really important control like this, think holistically. It it blows my mind to think that someone somewhere thought it made sense to apply that to employees and not to contractors. Well, maybe it was a cost thing. Maybe it was a planned rollout. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, you could be right. I, I could be overly Who critical. knows? Maybe it was in the contract between OPM and the contracting organization. Who, I mean, there's so many crazy things that come into play. There could have been some VP who runs the contractors screaming their head off saying, no, we're not going to do this. This inhibits our ability to get our job done. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm still hung up on the fact that they were mandated, quote-unquote, uh, in 2004 and never got that done, more than 1% of the organization. Which tells me a whole lot. That tells me that there's not much teeth behind those audits. So it makes you wonder what else they're ignoring. Well, I think um, if, I, if memory serves, and it's been a while since all this went on, but I, I think the inspector general had been going in and auditing OPM for a long time and turning up unsatisfactory results. But to no no effect. Exactly. That's the so, key. It's not like they were hiding it. Um, and, and 
so yeah, so this is it's there was no accountability. It clearly was not important basically to Congress who Exactly. I mean, I'm not trying to get political here, but in theory, Congress is the management, the board of directors of OPM. Exactly. So it comes back in many ways to leadership and leadership priorities. That's that's exactly my my thinking too. Yep. So uh yeah, I, uh, the reason I wanted to bring this up, obviously it's it, this thing we we continue to learn new, the new depths of depravity <laughs> regarding the OPM breach and what what's been going on on a weekly basis. But um the thing that you know, just setting the politics and everything aside, the thing that strikes me and I see this a lot is that people get really pedantic in their interpretation of policy requirements and they lose the context of why they're trying to, you know, why the, why they're doing the thing they're doing. And because who's measuring them and whole, who is holding them accountable? Typically auditors. Yeah. Well, that's right. And, and, and to be fair as I can to auditors, typically they don't understand the technical nuance well enough to know the spirit of the audit. That's very true. Uh, I see this all the time where, you know, the metrics around patching is more important than what we're actually patching. Right. And uh, you lose the context of why you're patching, right? You, yeah, I'm trying to be careful about what I say here. But <laughs> ultimately, yeah, you, you, you at some point need to have enough of a backbone to be able to keep the good intentions in mind. And if that means that you've got to take, you know, some hits from the auditors, sometimes that's worth it to get the right things done to protect the company. But if all you're doing, and in this case with OPM, they weren't even caring what the auditors were saying, which is even worse. But if, if you're, because we have gone more and more, especially in highly regulatory environments and, and regulated environments, to compliance and to audits and mandates. And if that is all you're reacting to, you're probably really missing a lot of important things. Yeah. And I get it. It's tough. And and boards and and risk and control groups have got to find some way to measure the effectiveness of their security group and and somehow uh, give oversight. But you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, you still have to be smart enough or, or at least strong enough in your convictions to go, I understand this is what you're looking for, auditor. However, this is why we did it a different way because of these good reasons to protect the company. Because at the end of the day, if you are completely compliant but you fail to protect the company, what good has it done you? Yeah. But I see that over and over and over and over and over. Yeah, and I, I think I think part of the this is just, you know, I know we're 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 descending into uh, into hyperbole and philosophy, <laughs> compliance philosophy here. But you know, one of the things that's that's struck me is that non-compliance has become its own category of risk, right? That is independent from the risk of loss associated with the thing that the compliance regime is intending to avoid. And, and so, you know, that just the risk of being non-compliant or the risk of failing an audit 
uh, or an examination or, or whatever is itself a risk. So we abstracted away the original intention behind the audit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And, it, and again, it's, it's become its own, its own thing, and which has to be managed like, uh, you know, like any other risk. Which I, I'm not, I'm not saying that it makes sense. I'm just saying that that's a, making an observation of of what I've seen. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And to be clear, I'm not saying there shouldn't be third party audits and, and and whatnot. I I do think there should be. I think that that's important. I think we can get very stuck in our own echo chamber in IT and have our own view of reality. And it's good to have a strong external third party come in and sanity check. Right. You still have to understand what the goal ultimately is with security, which is to keep the company as safe as leadership wants while still enabling business. And there are times those audits go sideways and are become their own beast and don't you know support that role. Right. Right. And I so, could have said that much more elegantly. And, I'm and, sorry. and sometimes you can you can manage that, and sometimes I think you can't. And I guess that's my that's my point. I agree. I, I mean, the only thing I would say is that there is a cost in resources, time, energy, and focus to deal with audits. Yeah. And so there's a value of diminishing returns for how many different audits you go through and deal with. Mm-hmm. That's right. And And, you know... That is one thing that I see a lot is is organizations chasing audit findings or chasing replies to audits or gathering information for audits as opposed to actually building high-leverage, long-term security wins. Yeah, and I, that, that honestly is a challenge. That's a management challenge, especially as... You know, as, as more of our industry, um, industries, I guess, becomes regulated uh, that's that's going to become a much greater management challenge and it is something that we've got to figure out how and you've talked about this in the past right how do you continue focusing on proactive stuff uh, while all of this you know all of this reactive stuff is happening in the background you know in the, in the past it was more on you know uh, getting out of the help desk ticket queue right and Doing productive, right. proactive things, but I think it's the same kind of situation uh, with with audit hell, and we, we've got to make sure that we don't get so tight so tied up in that that we lose the the context of what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, certainly, and you know, there's also an aspect of that of timing. You may have an auditor come in and, and flag you on, on an issue that you know you have, and you have a plan to fix a very elegant, idealized plan that's going to take six months to a year, but the auditor demands you fix it in two months. And so you have to put in a less than ideal solution and band-aid it that never, you never circle back around to fix. Right. Yep. There's no appetite or desire. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes in that case, it may be, Worthwhile to tell the auditor, we understand, and we're going to take longer than you'd like to fix it, but we're going to fix it the right way. Uh, and that, because again, an auditor has a myopic view of their little slice of what's going on in the organization. It's not balanced against everything else. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, 
anyhow, I think uh, I think that'll do our show for this evening. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I, I apologize if I seem a little down today. I'm just tired. It's been, <laughs> been a long day. <laughs> I'm not my normal happy-go-lucky self. It's I been apologize. a it's been a long week already. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it wasn't even necessarily work. It's just I'm just I'm just tired. Today. I don't think I slept well. So uh, sorry if I'm not as you know entertaining as I normally am. But uh, you're always it, entertaining. That's what she said. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, you know, if if uh, you like the podcast, give us some love on iTunes. We we definitely appreciate the uh, I think now eighty seven people who have left us reviews. Thank you, including one very entertaining sequel drop table attack, <laughs> which I laughed a lot. That was uh, very awesome. Yes, uh, I'm sure I'm sure Apple did not find that very funny, but but we did. As far as we know, it worked too. That's true. No. Yeah. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. But if it had, wouldn't that have been epic? I'm oh, sure. wouldn't that have been epic? Oh, my goodness. But yes, thank you very much for listening, guys. Thank you for the love on iTunes. Um, thank we, you. F- we, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say uh, thank you for all the Patreon uh, donations as well. That's exactly what I was going to say. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, it, it it still humbles me and boggles my mind that, that you guys are willing to, to give money to us to listen to us ramble away every week but thank you so much absolutely and uh, you can find the links to the stories we've talked about tonight and all of our previous episodes on our website www.defensivesecurity.org you can follow the podcast on twitter at DefensiveSec you can follow Mr. Callan on twitter at Lurg me on twitter at MaliciousLink if you have any ideas, feedback uh, whatever, send an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. I'm a few weeks behind in responding. However, I will respond. Do we need to do a listener mail episode coming I, up one of these days? I think we do, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and and I, uh, by the way, I do really appreciate uh, all the email that we get, especially like the, uh, the Russian uh, completely Cyrillic spam, you know, bride... The Russian mail order bride things; those are those are great. Uh, Have you picked one yet? Are you I'm, still are you still shopping? My my wife would not be happy about that. Well, that's not what I asked. I asked if you picked. One. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> anyway, um, no, I'm I'm I'm, I, I'm kidding. I do get a lot of spam on that, but uh, thank you very much um, for your emails. And with that, we'll talk again next week. Take care. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, we're all stupid. We've never done this before. So so you're getting mansplained? Is that right? Well, yeah. You're, you're on mute. Oh, my God. No, I, I was just testing you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.